Hi, good morning. Have a seat. My name's Mike, and I'm here to celebrate the greatness of our God. Thanks, guys. Have a seat, too. Uh, yeah, I was skipping. Um, and I was skipping in part because I, I love to hear about the greatness of Jesus, but I also was skipping because when I was growing up, there were certain rules about what a pastor was like. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I don't have a, a certain gravitas and decorum that I thought was required. But it turned out, as I got older and I got to know more pastors, that actually those rules that I thought were in place aren't actually based on anything. And so there were things that I saw in certain pastors that, that I said, oh, you can do that. You can have a smile on your face by default. Who knew? You can be silly sometimes. Cool. Maybe even, I don't know, it's possible you could be honest about what's hard in your own life, not just about other people's lives. And it turns out that there isn't a rule against any of those. And <clears throat> I'm really grateful. I don't have to be someone else in order to do what God designed me to do, what God empowers me to do. And there's something really freeing about not having to follow somebody else's made-up rules. But in today's passage, we're going to run squarely into some made-up rules. And so we're going to have to grapple with how people cling to them. So last week, Tim preached a passage about the healing of a man who had been born blind. And uh, today's passage is John chapter 9, verses 13 through 34. So we've got a bit of a narrative, and I'm going to read it in a minute. But if, if I were subtitling the text, I might say the further adventures of the MBB, the man born blind. I'm going to call him that, so don't be confused this morning. The MBB, he's the man born blind. So please take your Bible or your app. Remain seated this morning. If you use the Bible in front of you, it should be on page 1039. And we're going to read again John chapter 9, verses 13 through 34. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him, how he had received his sight. He put mud on his eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. This concludes the reading of God's word. May he open our eyes to see what he intends us to see and to know and to do. Amen. So today's sermon title is Blind Enough to See the Point. And if you've got a bulletin, there's a little box on there that you can write the title, Blind Enough to See the Point. And uh, if you're a person who likes forms, that'll be great fun for you. Um, but don't consider it a rule that I need you to follow, okay? That's important this morning. The text said that they brought the MBB, the man born blind, to the Pharisees. And because of where we started in the passage, I was like, well, who is they? The Dick Van Patten family? And uh, I don't know, does anybody even know who I'm talking about when I say the Dick Van Patten family? Anybody? Okay. All right. A few of my people. Thank you. Um, no, it's not the Dick Van Patten family from Eight is Enough. It's the neighbors and the friends and the people in the community who knew who this guy was. We know that from last week's text. So why was he brought to these people at all, since from today's reading, we know they're pretty unpleasant people? Well, it's difficult for us to imagine a context like this one, a culture that's community-based, a traditional culture, and not just community-based traditional culture, but one in which the religion is a centrifying part of the identity. It's just not what we experience here. And so we're a little bit out of place here. So picture, if you will, a really small town filled with busybodies, and everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And you begin to get a picture. Now, these Pharisees are the religious leaders. They are the most educated people probably in the town. And this is a healing. So it's a religious event, and so the people would like to get the leader's opinion on what's going on. Well, here comes the MBB. Out comes this inconvenient truth. He was healed on the Sabbath. So, let's see what happens when they weigh in. Uh, verses 13 through 15. Yeah, I just read this. We're going to hear it again. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him, How? This is a big Pharisee question. He had received his sight. 
He put mud on, his, on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Why are the Pharisees looking to find out what Jesus might have done wrong on a Sabbath? Why are they so uptight? Born that way? What's going on? Because in their understanding, the rules are important. And the reason that they understand it this way is because of God's word and their history and how they interpret that. So Deuteronomy, way back in the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures, it describes how it's possible for someone to come and either make predictions that come true or do wonders, but be doing them to draw the people of Israel away from their God. So Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, describes this possibility. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Moses is saying, look, the center of all of this has to be God. Don't let any signs and wonders confuse you. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. This prophet or dreamer who comes along who does something out of this bad motive must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. All right, well, that's some kind of rough stuff for wandering away because you saw somebody do a cool trick or they made a Super Bowl prediction that came true, right? Deuteronomy 28.15, so later in the same book, it's a warning. Consequences for not following God's commands and decrees. So 28, Deuteronomy 28.15, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And if you have a bulletin, on the back side, there's a list of verses that are the primary verses that we're going through today. And you'll notice next to Deuteronomy 28.15, it says FF. And the FF is a notation that means, and the verses that follow. And sometime when you've got a few minutes, reread Deuteronomy 28.15, and then read the consequences of their not heeding this warning. Because I'd be freaked out too if that's what I understood to be the consequences of being drawn away. Back in our text, John is describing a community of Jewish people and they're living in a land that would be a Jewish land if only their ancestors had just continued to follow Moses' law but time and again, they wandered away. And so the hard lesson of their nation's history has taught them to care passionately about the letter of the law. Okay, the letter of the law, and it's worse than that, actually. Let's look at the next verse, John 9, 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. How did healing the MBB break the Sabbath? There isn't a thing that says, if somebody's been born blind, don't heal them on the Sabbath because that's work. This is Jesus. He is God with skin. It didn't require him to do any work to fix this guy. So on the face of it, it's hard to know what they thought broke the law of the Sabbath. So what 
What could it be? I was curious about this. So <laughs> I looked at the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is, is a collection of rabbinical teachings. That's teachings of rabbis. And it comes from about 100 years after the ministry of Jesus. Okay, so it's not the set of things that this specific set of rabbis is, are thinking about. But it gives us an idea of where this thought pattern comes from. So let me give you a flavor of some of the things, the details, the nuance, the litany of stuff these guys are cooking up. Um, so among the things that you're not supposed to do on a Sabbath, uh, don't be the one who shears wool, washes it, beats it, dyes it, spins, weaves, makes two loops, weaves two threads, separates two threads, ties, unties, sews two stitches, tears in order to sew two stitches. Moses didn't give this law. Moses didn't say that the consequences of breaking these laws is going to be that your nation is going to experience utter ruin and you're going to be far from God. But this is how they were able to codify it so that they could be confident that they were going to keep the law and it wouldn't be their fault. These are just 13 examples of 39 categories of stuff they said you can't do on a Sabbath. What they learned from their ancestors' rebellion wasn't that their hearts needed to follow God. What they learned from their ancestors' rebellion was, I need to be able to control my following of the rules. I need to be able to understand the rules in such minute detail that I can be confident of my own righteousness, and that way I can be certain of God's approval of me. It can be in my grasp. Now, we call this idea legalism, that we gain God's approval by doing his will. So legalism is the idea that human beings can earn or merit right standing with God. All right? That's not going to roll off the tongue, so I'm going I'm to do it again. We're going to fill in the blanks. Legalism is the idea that human beings can earn or merit right standing with God. So human beings can earn right standing with God. Whew. The only problem with legalism is the entirety of the message of the Bible. Just a small problem. Let me give you one example. The Apostle Paul sums uh, this trouble up. Titus uh, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 says, Christ saved us not, or God saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, oh, oops, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Paul is completely taking the power to make us right with God out of our hands or other people's hands and putting it in the hands that can be trusted, that are his hands in Christ Jesus. So this too bears repeating and remembering, because I don't want you to remember what legalism and not remember what the opposite of legalism is. God saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of what? Whose mercy? God's mercy. 
God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by following the law? No, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through our obedience of a bunch of nitinoid rules? No, Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by our good works? No, by his grace we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And that's why we sing about God's amazing grace. This is why we don't rely on our own works for acceptance by God. Instead, our acceptance by God makes us want to do good works. It's a complete inversion of what the Pharisees' program is on. But let's get back to the passage and point out the difficulty that they have. Uh, John 9, verse 16, the second part. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And this is actually one of the things that I learned by reading the Mishnah was the fact that you're able to create this, this elaborate superstructure of rules around what Moses gave doesn't mean that you get all the questions answered. Because even a hundred years after this, in this codified understanding of rabbinical teaching, what happens? Well, some things appear to be agreed on by most people, but then you start getting all kinds of, well, followers of this camp of rabbis say that's okay. Followers of this camp of rabbis say that's not okay. Well, now what do I do? Do I pick the most conservative rabbis and, and follow their rules? Do I live in the freedom of, you know, a super elaborate set of rules that some more liberal rabbis created? I no longer am able to construct my own answers of what's forbidden and what's acceptable on the Sabbath. So despite all this effort put into determining what's right and wrong, they fail. So, facing this problem that they're divided among their, themselves about what's going on, they're like, okay, well, we're not going to resolve it ourselves. Let's get that guy back. So they work over the MBB again. John chapter 9, verse 17, then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. Okay, well, that wasn't on their multiple choice pull-down menu, okay, for, for what they wanted to hear from this guy. Now, it may be an inadequate understanding of who Jesus is, but I want to point out something here. This man is literally, at this point in our story, not an eyewitness of Jesus. Why do I say that? Because the last time that he was in Jesus' presence, he was still blind. What happened? He went to Jesus, Jesus put mud on his eyes and said, Go to the, the pool that I'm telling you, I'm sending you to, it's called Scent, and wash, and then you'll gain your sight. And as far as we know, he hasn't seen Jesus since then. So he's going on not blind faith, but a confidence in the fact that this man, unlike any man he's ever even imagined before, could heal him. That's pretty amazing. So he's never laid eyes on him, but he's got to take Augustine, the North African church father, said, he preaches and yet knows not the being whom he preaches. Yeah, he knows him a little bit. He knows what he's done for him. And in that little bit, he's an effective preacher. But the Pharisees are still not even convinced that this isn't some kind of a scam. Verses 18 and 19, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received sight until they sent for his parents. Is this your son? Is this the one you say 
was born blind? Oh yeah, that's, that's convincing argumentation right there. How is it that he can now see? They don't like the answer that the MBB gave, so let's try with the parents. Well, the parents aren't having any of this either. They've got a different approach than the son does. Verses 20 and 21, we know he is our son, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. We've got his birth certificate right here. But he's not our problem anymore. He's not on our health care coverage anymore. So, you know, thanks mom and dad. They would have no reason to believe, we would have no reason to believe that they didn't know, did know. I've confused myself. The reason that we know that they knew what had happened is because John conveniently explains it. His parents said this. Why? Because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. So it wasn't because they had no idea what was going on, but because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. There were going to be consequences to their acknowledging what had happened. Merely telling the truth was going to be unpleasant for them. There are always going to be people who are in opposition to truth. And even though these Pharisees are people with authority and they've got a loud voice on such matters, the parents don't trust them because these people already have decided about who Jesus is. They've already made clear where the line must be drawn. Maybe you can say he's a prophet, but you for sure can't say he's the Messiah, that he's from God. No, 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 we don't know where he comes from. If you do say that, what's going to happen? You're going to be excommunicated. Maybe you're going to be shunned. Maybe your business isn't going to get faithful people anymore because who would fraternize with a person who thinks this awful stuff like you do? And the parents don't want to end up in this category. So the finger pointing has to refocus back on the man born blind. Verse 24, a second time they summon the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner, a sinner. And it's such a snotty remark. I mean, it's start telling the truth. We already know the truth about him, so, you know, bring it. Tell us something in line with what we've already decided. That's not what he does. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And here's the rub for the Pharisees. You can't take that away from him. (laughs) He's standing right in front of them. He's self-verified as the man born blind. His parents have said he's the man born blind. The people who brought him to the Pharisees said he's the man born blind. And they're like, well, that can't be because otherwise our whole system of understanding would fall down. But that's not what they do. They They don't admit that to themselves. Their philosophy and their theology can't accommodate the man born blind being who he says he is let alone Jesus being who John has been saying all along that he is. So what do they do? They focus on the rules again. Verse 26, they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They've got nothing. They've got nothing on Jesus. They've got nothing on the man born blind. They are trying to look for a way that they can object to this happening. And (laughs) <laughs> the man born blind lets him have it. I told you already, and you didn't listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? You can't handle the truth, you know? It's... Now, to me, this sounds a bit like Jesus from the last chapter, um, John 8, 45 and 46. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. For the very reason that he's a truth teller, they don't believe him. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? If they could answer this question, they would stop being who they are, and that would be the best thing in the world for them. But Jesus knew they weren't going to listen and that they weren't going to believe. But they're hearing the MBB. You can tell that his sarcastic remark lands because now they're going on the attack, verses 28 and 29. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. We know the law of Moses, they say. We know it so well, we've made a labyrinth of rules, a superstructure around it, and we are the guides to that, and it's what's reality. We are docents at the Winchester Mystery House, and that's where our value in life comes from. But they don't know Jesus. The man answered, now yeah, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I was not able to find in scripture before this point any clear indications that there was a man born blind healed. So I think he's right about that. And you got to say, this is the best day of this guy's life, right? Uh, he's, he's regained his sight. He's realized that the legalists who have been calling the shots in town for so long are the ones who are blind. He not only has sight, he sees that the leaders don't. And out of everyone present, he is the person who most understands Jesus, who knows the most about Jesus, a man he has apparently never laid eyes on. Man, what a trajectory. He went from nothing to no, being the, the best witness in town about who Jesus is. And his comments remind me of Psalm 66, verses 17 through 20. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. This isn't a good day for the Pharisees. All they have left are insults and use of their authority. They replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. That's a foul tea you've been brewing in, Bubba. How dare you lecture us and throw him out. We've already heard Jesus say, nah, to this argument. Uh, last week, he told the disciples in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it's interesting that the Pharisees are blind to the transformation in the MBB. They're deaf to his testimony of Jesus' power and goodness. They would rather be right about the law and putting their trust in it than concede that Jesus could be from God, even though he's done this thing that they can't even believe could have happened. 
and they do to the MBB what his parents were afraid they'd do to them and kick him out. Cool story, huh? What do I do with that, though? I want to answer that question in, in three ways. Because I think we can learn from the responses of the MBB, the responses of the Pharisees, and the responses of the MBB's parents. So first, the MBB. And I think this is an opportunity for me to encourage you, if you have not been a follower of Jesus for very long, maybe you can't find your way around a Bible very easily yet. Maybe when people throw around theological terms, you're not really clear on what they mean. Maybe some of those words you haven't even heard yet. And so you don't feel like you're a wealth of experience, but, but you have experienced and are experiencing a life that's been transformed because Jesus has stepped in and you said, yes, yes, I don't want whatever it was that I was running my life with before. I want what you've got, Jesus. Jesus stepped into a world full of people who knew the Bible better than I do. He stepped into a world of people who were so proud of that that they couldn't see him. So it's hard for me to say, new believer, what I want from you is all the knowledge that they had. And at the same time, I don't want you to be afraid of knowledge. What the Pharisees lacked wasn't ignorance. What the Pharisees lacked was a submission to God, a love for God's plan, a willingness to humble themselves in his sight. And that's what new believers often have the most of, and experienced believers often get a shot in the arm being around them because you are more enthusiastic and more excited about what you're discovering and learning than some of us more complacent Christians might be. So the fact that you don't feel like you'd win Bible quiz is less the point than what you know already, are you doing it? What you have experienced, are you bold to share it when you're asked? Because that's, that's what it's about. Your message is, you didn't deserve rescue, just as I didn't deserve rescue, and none of us deserved rescue, but God stepped in in the person of Jesus and brought something that we could never bring for ourselves. Now, every single Christian, not just new believers, should relate in some way to the MBB. You don't have to have experienced physical healing or delivery from an addiction, something dramatic like that in order, maybe a call to new work. But what you do need to know is you weren't born spotless. You didn't live spotlessly. You didn't find your own way. God found you. God sent Jesus to heal you. And in fact, Paul, the Jewish man, <laughs> Jesus sent as a missionary to Gentiles, because God has a great sense of humor, explained to the church at Thessalonica, displays of power that aren't centered on God's glory are part of trouble 
that's going to come. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The power isn't the point. God is the point. And that's what the Pharisees missed. That's what the people that Paul is saying are going to come near the end are going to miss. And because that's how the Pharisees responded, I think we have to think about them. Because I know plenty of people who mistakenly think they were born Christians. Your family of origin can be a positive influence if what they inculcated you, in you was an understanding of the gospel and its goodness and its availability to you and the greatness of God's mercy to us in that. And if the Holy Spirit was at work in your family of origin, that can be a great testimony and you can have desired that from the time you were very little. That doesn't mean that you were born spotless or have lived spotlessly. It doesn't mean that God owes you something that he doesn't owe somebody else who is more obviously spotty looking and has come to him. But that's what our Pharisees in this passage thought. They were certain that they were pure. They were certain of it. They had to be. They had cooked up all the formulas and lived as best they could. And they condemned God the Father's plan and God the Son's invitation and the Holy Spirit's seal, all while thinking they were the masters, the ones who knew how to do it. And they were focused so intently on the how that they missed the who and the why. And here's the thing, family. There are always people in a church who think the best reason to do something is that's how we've always done it. But there are also always people in a church that's growing numerically who have come from another context and think the best reason to do something is we always did it that way there. And now I'm going to meddle, okay? I'm warning you. Are you seriously going to tell me <laughs> that the reason that you want to do something at COV is because it was done at the church that you left in order to come to COV? Now, if, if somebody bound you and threw you in their trunk and drove you here, then I totally understand that. You're, you're not here of your own volition, and, and it's a different circumstance. Now, don't misunderstand me. I want to hear your ideas for ministry. But we did X at Y is a story. It's not a reason. And we're not looking to replicate how here. We're not trying to build a ministry model. We're not trying to duplicate things that may have been extremely successful. We're going to center around the gospel, the most successful movement in the history of the world, around the growth of our participants, and about trying to understand and live out more and more what it means to be family with one another. So be sure to invest yourself in the who of God is and the why we love and serve him. Understand that before you get carried away with any ministry house, whether it's something imported or something new and local. All right, one more bit to meddle with. I know in this room there are people still convinced 
that being good is the key to God's favor. No. Being in Christ is the key to God's favor. Now, God doesn't get confused. He doesn't look at you, John, and, oh, that's Jesus. No. He sees John, and he sees me, and he sees my blemishes, and he sees my receding hairline, and he sees my softening midsection, and he sees my selfish motives, and he's aware of every facet of Mike. But he says, Mike, you're in Christ, and I am satisfied with Christ's righteousness for you, Mike, for you, John. And that's what gives us our confidence that we are acceptable to God. The only reason not to do that is the reason that the Pharisees had, which is pride. Pride in their own goodness, pride in their own efforts, pride in their own understanding of life, and you can tell that that's where you're living because you're listening to this and you're speechless or you're angry. You're angry at me for saying that. And there are a lot of people who have been damaged by legalists who pass themselves off as Christians. And I should be more generous and say, people have been damaged by people who <laughs> are legalists and think they are Christians. Self-reliant, fearful, and angry is a rough way to parent children and likewise, it's a rough way to be raised as a child. Whether you're the Pharisee or whether your parents were, I want to tell you that hope survives because Jesus came for the sick. And what the Pharisees didn't understand though was they're sick too. They couldn't possibly be that. It would break their whole house of cards. And that's what needed breaking. Okay, last thing I want to say. It's possible to look like the MBB's parents. And... They're caught between a religious culture and, and this transformative reality that they can't escape. They know what he looked like when he was born. And now they know what he sees. So they know the transformation is real, but they can't bear to tell these important people in their culture the truth. They don't want any part of that because they don't want to get mixed up in it and experience the damage that comes from taking on people who are sure they are right. And boy, if, if, if that resonates with you, I think you know it. <laughs> you feel the pull from each direction. Um, you know Jesus is real, but you're afraid of what happens if you bring him up at work, even if somebody brings it up for you. Maybe you don't want to become one of those people who, who doesn't care what other people think about you if what you're excited about is Jesus. And I think that's a struggle for most people. Let's think of it this way, though. God has not equipped us to give out eyes, but he has given us everything that we need to shine his light.